Good morning, good morning. It is so good to have each and every one of you here as we're going through a study of the doctrine of the incarnation, the reality that God became man. And the reality of God becoming man is one of those things that helps us, especially those who have grown up in the faith, to understand that Jesus came to earth more than just to die. He didn't, he did, did he come to die? Absolutely. Was the, the payment on the cross in the death and resurrection the mission? Yes, but it was not the whole mission. He has all of these other years that he's on this planet and three years in specific leading up to that point that are recorded in the gospels. And, and the book of Hebrews highlights the fact that that instructs us to understand that, that the part of him being here, part of him walking as a human, was for him to be able to understand us in our weakness, to understand us in our trials, our difficulties, and all that. And so there was key aspects of that that are important for us to highlight. So we've been doing a series all the way from the beginning of this year to Easter, talking about the incarnation and the different ways that he gets us, which of course brings us to Back to the Future. Now, Back to the Future, big fan of it. Uh, any fans of Back to the Future? If you really hate it, that's fine. I don't care. But I, I, I'm, I'm a big fan. But the interesting thing is that everyone in Back to the Future isn't a big fan of Back to the Future. The guy who plays George McFly is someone who's not a fan of the movie. And in fact, he only was in the first one. To which you might say, hold on a second. I remember him in the second. No, you saw a stunt double. He refused to be in the second. And the reason he refused to be in the second was how the first one ended. He had an absolute disagreement with the director and the writers for how it was going to end. Because in the beginning of the film, you have very ordinary George McFly, very nerdy, he's not accomplished, and, and is, he's an he and his wife Lorraine are both embarrassments to the rest of the kids in the family. The kids in the family are embarrassment to Marty McFly. But one event, one event in history, in 1955, changed everything. And then all of a sudden, once that was changed, the future, the actual, the, the 19, was it 1985? 1985, McFly's were totally different because that one event transpired. They went from being ordinary to being extraordinary. They were, they, were, they were cool, they were hip, they were wealthy, they were successful, all because of that one event, which causes everyone who's watching this to ask the question, what would be that one event in my life? Because most of us look at our life and say, man, if only, if only that didn't happen, today would be different. Only if I didn't get injured at that point, this would not have taken place. Only if I didn't date that person, marry that person, have that, not have that kid, that's messed up. But like, if, only, if I, only if this didn't happen, if I didn't take that job, if I didn't get fired from that, if I didn't open my mouth, this event would have been the key thing that would have caused my life to be actually all that it could have been, extraordinary, but alas, I'm stuck with the fact that I am this McFly, this version of ordinariness, which brings us to 2 Corinthians. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. You know, between the two letters to the church in Corinth, we get all, like, 1 Corinthians gets tons more airplay. You don't hear a whole lot of uh, messages, sermons coming out of 2 Corinthians, which is a shame because it's awesome. And the passage that we're going to read today is a huge chunk, okay? So, and, we, and at mission, we stand when we read God's word. And so if your knees are bad, halfway through, if you need to take a halftime, that's okay. Because it's a big section, but it's worth, like, I was like, should I cut this? No, we can't cut any of this. This is all super important context of what Paul is talking about with regard to the ordinariness of life. And so if you've got your Bibles, open them up. We're actually going to be in 2 Corinthians starting in chapter 11. And if you could stand for the reading of God's word. This is again the Apostle Paul. And whenever we introduce Paul, we introduce him as somebody who is not a fan of Christians. He thought Christians were dumb and dangerous. 
If they were just dumb, he could just like laugh them off, but they were dangerous because their message was spreading and he found it to be so, I don't know if you've ever thought someone was so dangerous you'd be willing to kill them, but that's where Paul was with regard to Christians. And so for him to go from that place and that thought of who Jesus was as the Messiah to the point where he's giving his, willing to give his life for that Messiah is earth shattering. And so this is not a fanboy who's just like going along with what his granny told him when he was growing up. This is someone who sold out because he met Jesus. And so we get, his words are just so awesome to, to read. When we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning uh, at the second part of verse 21, it starts off this way. What anyone else dares boast about, I'm speaking as a fool, I dare boast about. I also dare boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Pause real quick. Paul's a skilled Pharisee. He was trained in a Pharisee. And I don't know if you've ever felt like you've had to go through life, like putting out your pedigree and your portfolio, like you're on a perpetual first date all the time, um, or with your work or with people. But, but that's kind of Paul's schooling. He knows what it is to brag about how awesome he is. And so he's like, look, you, you want to hear some bragging? Here it goes. Whatever anyone else care, dares to boast about, I'm speaking as a fool here, but I also dare boast about. Verse 22, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I've worked much harder. I've been in prison more frequently. Have you bragged about that one recently? You've done more jail time than me? No. Been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in dangers from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst. Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped. In danger from false believers, verse 27. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and I've often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who's led into sin and I don't feel inwardly, I don't inwardly burn? If I must boast, I'll boast about the things that show my weaknesses. The God and Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is to be praised forever, knows that I'm not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of the Damascus guarded in order to arrest me, but I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through their hands. I must go on boasting, although there's nothing to be gained. I will, off, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I am a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. I know a man in Christ who was 14 years caught up into the third heaven. Whether it was the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, uh, I'm was caught, verse 4, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or what I say or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weaknesses. Therefore, 
I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus was ordinary. And one of the things that's so important for us to realize about that is that when I, when just like even putting that on the screen, it sounds almost blasphemous to say about Jesus because we know that Jesus was all God and all man at the same time. How could we possibly say that Jesus was ordinary? Well, let's take a look at the scope of the incarnation. When we look at how Jesus was ordinary, we realize that he was extraordinary and ordinary. There are things that were extraordinary, like his birth, for sure. The, the virgin birth is an extraordinary reality. No human being has done that. This was God saying, I'm going to do something supernatural here. This is not going to be the relationship. This, is not, this child is not going to be the product of a sexual relationship. This child is going to be the product of a miracle. And so his birth was extraordinary, and yet his body was not. In fact, it's one of those interesting things about Scripture. Do you know that the Bible says that Jesus wasn't all that easy on the eyes? Did you know that? It's hard to believe that because every time you see Jesus cast, it's like Brad Pitt Jesus or super, you know, studly Jesus looking person. But the Bible actually says, and in fact, the prophetic, when the prophet Isaiah was talking about the Messiah, it describes his physical appearance which is awkward, but he did it. Isaiah 53, one says, this Messiah, this future Messiah, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to, a, to, uh, attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Now that's kind of, like if your mom said that about you, <laughs> Tim, yeah. uh, I, mean, I mean, great personality, lots of potential. Nothing in him that would make anyone desire him. <laughs> Not in his appearance, at least. But, I mean, if your mom said that, you're like, Mom, what are you? But the Bible says that about Jesus. It's like one of those things where it's like, how are we going to know? Is he going to be just like this, like he's super tall and everyone's like looking at how amazing he is? Like, no, if you walked past him and forgot about him because he just was so meh, that's probably more accurate a description of the Messiah. So he had an extraordinary birth, but his appearance was just ordinary. Okay, not only that, we have his knowledge. He had extraordinary knowledge. Coming into the incarnation, Jesus knows everything. He created everything. Everything was created by him and for him, scripture says, right? That is unlimited knowledge. And yet, when he steps into the incarnation as a human, he has limited. He has dialed back knowledge, diminished knowledge. And we know this because the Bible says that he had to grow. As a child, he grows in his knowledge. Okay, so this is the crazy thing. This is the person who invented physics, who's now having to learn how to like navigate gravity as he's learning how to walk. Jesus is a human being that gets tired, that gets hungry, that has to go to the bathroom, that has to take a nap, that has to get away, that gets all of these things, ordinary body and diminished knowledge. I mean, if you wanted to look at the capstone of, of being ordinary and as a mortal human, he died. You don't get more common or normal human, human being than the reality that you can't outrun death. Jesus was killed. And, that, and that's just one of those remarkable things about how the immortal chose to become mortal. The unkillable God chose to become killable. That's the ordinary part of Jesus. But the extraordinary part is it didn't stick. It did not stick. 
And that's, one of those, that's why we're here today, because this was not just a great teacher, this wasn't just a good rabbi, this was not just someone who was an ordinary person, it was someone who did extraordinary things. But one of the things that we have to look to and look at this amazing, ordinary, extraordinary God and man at the same time is the fact that Jesus is somebody who called followers that were also ordinary. People that you would not have chosen to coach your kid's soccer team. He calls as the people that are going to launch a movement that's going to change Western civilization and the world forever. He calls people that are on opposite sides of the political aisle on purpose. People that other people have passed over for job um, opportunities to go higher and higher in their field. He chose people who were novices. He chose older people, younger people. He chose people that were this mixed bag of demographics on purpose. Super common, super, super ordinary. However, the thing that's amazing about Jesus, and again, the reason we're here today is what he did through those followers. The extraordinary means that he, that he accomplished through the people that he chose and that he's still choosing. Now listen, you might come in here and you might have this perspective that you've been grown up with about the reality of your limitations and your weaknesses. But the message today is simply this. My limitations do not limit God. The reality that we walk through life with that type of a perspective, that we're, again, we're always trying to have a best foot forward so that we're accepted, best foot forward so that we get hired, best foot forward so we get a second date. All of that reality, that is so conditioned, and, and, and we have this perspective of, man, I have to just work harder and harder and harder, but, but at the end of the day, we know our weaknesses, and so we start to disqualify ourselves over and over again. I can't be used by God because of my limitations. I'm too young. I'm too old. I'm, I'm too unskilled. I've got skills that, that God can't use. I've got too much baggage from my past. I don't have enough experience. These limitations might limit you anywhere else, but the gospel is that those limitations do not limit God. And the response to a very living God and the very real God who continually calling ordinary people, ordinary God is calling the extraordinary, calling ordinary God, the ordinary God calling ordinary people to do the extraordinary, our response is to follow Paul's model in three ways. And this is, the, with regard to our limitations, the first thing we should be doing about them is to brag about them. We should brag about our weaknesses. Now, would I say that? No. But the Bible would. Look what Paul says. He says this, therefore I will what? Okay, what does boast mean? Yeah, it's almost like you're proud of the thing you should be burying this is counterintuitive with anything else except for the kingdom of God. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. Why? Okay, now here's the thing. This is the practice. The practice is the practice of actually boasting about something. The product is this. This is the, the, the therefore. This is the so that if we, if we do this, this is what's going to happen. So that if I'm actually outing myself, if I'm outing myself for my weaknesses, outing myself for my limitations, not hiding them, but being open about them, if I do that, then as a Christian, Christ's power may rest on me. In other words, if I choose to hide my weaknesses, bury my ordinariness, make it as if I don't have limitations and I just basically I'm bluffing everyone that I'm walking around, I miss out on something. I miss out on that, on Christ's power. One of the things that I love about our church is that we have a mission statement that's, that's this. We are a community of Christ followers who are committed to what? Being real with God, Real with God, real with each other, and real with the, in the world. And the, the reality behind that mission statement is this. There are so many ways that human beings 
steer into inauthenticity, falsehoods and, 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 and facades. Like we try to fake it to make it. We do that over and over again. And that makes sense everywhere else except for the church. And yet, it's Christians that often are the pros at this. And the truth is that that shouldn't be where we're at. We should be the type of people like Paul, who has tons of stuff to brag about in his own portfolio, but he chooses. In fact, in another passage, he says that I look at this, and he uses a stronger word than this, but I'm not going to use it here. I look at all of the stuff that I could brag about that I've done, all of my strengths, compared to Jesus and his grace in, in calling me in the midst of my weaknesses. I look at all my strengths as crap. This is crap compared to that. You don't brag about crap. I don't, and you shouldn't. Paul doesn't either. He's like, you know what? This is where it's at. And, and when, um, when I, when, uh, we, Julie and I just finished 25 years here, and that's awesome. When, I, when we got to 20 years, you know what they did? They, someone in our church gave me a t-shirt. I don't know if you guys have ever seen this t-shirt. It's fantastic. And it's true. And the thing is this, I was hoping that when I got to 25, they were going to give me another shirt that was going to say, and marginally better or something, but they didn't. But the truth is that, that this is a church that we value the reality that we could be honest about our ordinariness. I love that about this. Within Celebrate Recovery, within Reengage, any ministry that's aiming to help people from where they're at to get them to where God wants them to be is in a place of saying, I'm going to be honest about where I'm at. I'm going to be honest about my shortcomings. I'm going to be honest with the fact that my marriage stinks. I'm going to be honest about the fact that I'm having such a struggle kicking this addiction. I'm struggling through life, that I'm not doing well, that I'm not okay, that things need to be improved, and that I could actually out my weakness, out my ordinariness, out the fact that I'm not killing it, that I'm struggling. And this is the place that we should be rocking that. True? If Paul is accurate, that's what we should be doing. We should be bragging about it. Maybe put it this way. We lack the power of God. We lack the power of God because we think only the powerful can be used by God. We lack the power of God because we disqualify ourselves, we're like, well, I'm not a really great speaker. I'm not a really, I'm young in my faith. I'm not someone who's, who's got everything all put together. And so because of that, I'm going to just sit back and be a spectator in this life and let other people do things because they're clearly way better at that than I am. And according to Paul, by having that type of perspective, we are sidelining ourselves from the very thing that God wants us to do. No, we lack the power of God because we think only the powerful, the super talented, the super wealthy, the super blessed, whatever, are the ones that can be used by God. Scripture says just the opposite. Whatever your limitation is, out yourself on it. Be open about it. Brag about it. Paul did. But not just that. We actually have something else we're instructed to do. Not just brag about it, but also enjoy it. We actually have the capacity to enjoy it. He says, that is why, for Christ's sake, I what? Delight in weakness. That makes no, does, any, does this make sense to anybody? Who delights, oh man, I came in like last place in that race. Woohoo! No, we're always like, what's wrong with me? Why am I so deficient? Why can't I be better? 
I delight. And this isn't even saying like, okay, so just phone it in. Whatever like you're supposed to do, just do a lame job on it. No, he's like, Paul's like, look, I am doing everything I can with the best of all the strength that I can. But I'm honest about the fact that I've got weaknesses. And honestly, if I've got the perspective that God is really in control, that God is extraordinary and I'm super ordinary and God still chose me, well, then that gives me a different psychological disposition. I'm more psychologically fit to go through life and serve God because the fact that I am confident in his strength, his skill, not mine. If your firm foundation is all your circumstances and and stuff that's going on in your life, you have a insecure foundation. In fact, let's put it this way. As far as delighting in weakness, this part right here, this is all the, the not awesome stuff inside of us. All the things that are not awesome within me. I'm delighting even in stuff that I can't I can't change about myself, or I'm trying, or I'm working on changing about myself, but it's not, I'm not complete, I'm not finished. Paul's like, I can delight in my weaknesses, but not just my weaknesses on the inside. He also talks about all of these right here. The things that are not awesome outside of me, my context, my circumstances, the insults that I receive. I can't control what people say, but I can even delight in the fact that they're insulting me. And hardships, I don't like hardships. I would vote no on hardships any day of the week. But do hardships happen in life? You better believe they do. So as a Christian, you have a different posture, a different vantage point to come from. When hardships come, I can go, I don't love this. I don't like this. I don't want this. I'm going to work to try to help get out of this. But in the midst of this, I can even delight because I'm like, I know that God has got a plan that's perfect. And this garbage is happening in the midst of it. So that means that even this, God's going to find a way to use I've got the confidence in that, so that takes some of the steam out of the moment. It takes some of the venom out of the snake of what I'm experiencing. In persecutions, in difficulties. The, this reality right here, the, the fact that we have the ability to be honest and brag about our weaknesses and our limitations and then go from there and actually enjoy them is profound. And too few Christians are living that out. As a, as a church, one of the things that we like to do, we, we, uh, it's very common for churches of any size to try to get um, uh, pastors or, or people that they want, they want to have as the person that's speaking every week or worship pastors, the, the ones that are leading worship every week. Um, and a couple years ago, we decided you know, God's really called us to do something different. We see in scripture the reality that we're called as pastors to equip the saints, which means that we take people that are not the, the you know, man, they've had like a hundred sermons under their belt. They've had all this experience. We want to see people. This last summer, we tried to get people that have never spoken a sermon to get trained on how to deliver a sermon. We have people that have never led worship that we want to train them uh, on leading worship. Now, are they going to be on the same level necessarily as someone who that's their profession? No, but we love that. We love the fact that God uses the ordinary to do the extraordinary. And just about every staff person at our church has a moment in their life when they could point to and tell you that somebody looked at them as an ordinary, undeveloped, unskilled person and said, I want you to deliver this Bible study. I want you to lead this worship song. What, and, and the roles that the different staff that we have on staff, the roles that they're doing, what initiated that was somebody who was skilled and, and better at something who wasn't weak necessarily in, their, in that role, looking at someone who was and calling them up. See, because if, if you don't think that it's just about the, the best of the best, the highlight reel, well, then that's a game changer. One of the problems that a lot of churches have is if they have like a, a, a senior pastor or a worship pastor and they're just like, Whoa. 
they're awesome. And everyone's like, man, I've been going to this church for 25, 25, 30 years, and it's the same guy up here. It's been awesome. Like, and, and they go through life like that. That's great. But then what happens if that guy gets hit by a bus on Tuesday? Then all of a sudden, like a whole bunch of the church feels all of a sudden suddenly called to go someplace else. Right? And that's because all they had a chance to see was one person who got better and better and better at what they were doing. But they weren't believing that God is magnified in the weakness and the ordinary parts of seeing ordinary people get developed. I love that. It's one of my favorite parts about this church is watching people step in and get growing and and having an opportunity in that. It's just awesome. I love, um, when we were building this building over here, um, the, the building that's got the youth room up on top, and then the first level is the, the early childhood of the nursery area, and then the, the lower level is the, um, uh, the food pantry. When we were like raising money for that, there's two reasons I didn't want to become a lead pastor. And one of them was because I never wanted to go lead a church through a capital campaign. We were like, okay, we got this huge project, so we need you guys to give some more. Like, I didn't want to do that. And then all of a sudden, within the first couple of years of being a lead pastor, boom, we got that thing. And so I'm like, okay, we believe in this. We know God wants us to do this, but it's going to be tough. And I remember fantasizing about the idea that we're like, okay, this this is going to be like a a million dollar or two million dollar project. It's going to be really expensive. And I had this amazing idea of like this like rich guy who'd walk in and you would never know he's rich. The guy, he looks homeless and he walks over to me at the cafe and he says, Pastor Errol, I know that you're raising two million dollars for this project. Yes, I am. Well, I just felt led by the Lord to write you a check for four million dollars. We want to see this project get even bigger and it's gonna be phenomenal. And I remember thinking going, what, what, thank you. And like the, how awesome that was. And I shared that fantasy with another pastor friend of mine. And I'm like, man, wouldn't that be awesome? And he's like, no, no, it wouldn't. I'm like, no, it would be, it would be awesome. That would be awesome. And he says, no, it wouldn't be awesome because studies have found that churches that have these huge projects and they ask the church to participate, And the church doesn't, but there's this one wealthy benefactor that bankrolls the whole project. Here's the check, paying for the whole thing. That initially the church is like, woohoo, we accomplished our goal in 13 seconds. But then all of a sudden, the fact that they didn't participate in any of that causes this just decline. Because that was never God's intention. It was just to get like one dude in a church and a bunch of people that that have no participation. Now, he told me that, and I, I'm getting close to believing he's accurate. Close. It'd still be awesome. I'm still waiting. That's why I'm over at the cafe so often. I'm like, where is he? <laughs> he's coming. But that's not. I mean, the truth is, is that, that, look, this is it. In hardships, one of the things about church work, and none of you guys, none of you guys are paid to be here, Right? We gather as a church family week after week. And, and like Katie says, we love that this is a generous church. We believe that we respond to God's generosity. But the thing I love about that is that it's not just one wealthy bankroller making the budget happen so we can do ministry. It's bunches of people, ordinary people with ordinary sized salaries and everyone leaning in together and being generous together. And all of a sudden we get to see in the midst of our hardships what God does out of the ordinary, extraordinary things happening. And that, as I'm, the older I get as a pastor, the more I'm like, that's where it's at. That's the beauty. And, and if you, in another way, if you ever want to like just be your mind blown, talk to a seasoned Christian. A Christian who's not just had this, like, I, I've been a Christian for 18 months, and I got a new job, I got a new car, I got a new girlfriend, and everything's going awesome. And someone just gave me like frozen yogurt for free. Woo! 
Woo! Like, someone who's not just like living a life where everything's going perfect, but who's gone through trauma and difficulty and death and disease, where they've gone through and seen the, the horrible underbelly of life, and they've gotten into their 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s, and all of a sudden, as a Christian who's still holding on to the faith, who had their faith rocked by things, but they held on to Jesus all the way through. It was through the hardships and the difficulties and the persecution and things not going well and the things that they're weak in and the ways that they blew it that all of a sudden they got a chance to look back and see the goodness and grace of God. And they got a chance to see how amazing God was and their faith is significant, not because life was woo, but because life was and all the way through it, they saw Jesus. Those are the people that have faith that's just rock solid, not because life is so epic, but because Jesus is. Not because their conditions were so awesome, but because Jesus is. Not because their skills constantly were leading them to better and better moments, but because Jesus' Jesus's skill of calling them into opportunities that were above their pay grade, was so awesome. That's where it's at. You've got limitations and weaknesses, brag about them. Enjoy them and exercise them. Be the type of Christian that is willing to say, I am not going to bench myself because of my weaknesses. I am not going to make my foundation of my life built on my circumstances, my skill set, or anything else. I'm actually going to just say, look, I'm an ordinary person. I've got ordinary limitations. I've got baggage, but I'm open to God using whatever he wants in me for him. I'm open to that. And that's where we land on Paul's final words in this passage that we read today. For when I am weak, for when I am weak, then I am strong. If you could just make this part of your everyday life, when I am weak, then I am strong. It's not when I am strong, then I am strong. It's when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the Savior Jesus who said, the last shall be first. The weak shall be strong. That, and then that, that Paul just said that God's power is made perfect in our weaknesses, not in our strengths. You want to go through life with a, with a diminished fulfillment of what God has intended for you? Try to just lead in your, weak, lead in your strengths over and over and over again and keep on running after that. And there's going to be moments where you're going to be super proud of yourself. But all your skills and all the things that, that are bragworthy are going to hit a wall and run out. They're going to dissipate over time or maybe even abruptly. The people that are going to bypass you are the people that are open about their weaknesses and letting them be used by God in spite of them. I've told this story so many times that if you've been at our church six months, you probably heard it. I don't even care because I love the story. It's just something that was a profound moment in my life when I was in fifth grade. When I was in fifth grade, I, my family moves, and um, all of a sudden, uh, I'm, I'm in a school district where, as a, as a white kid, I was a minority, and so when it got to uh, after, not after school, but at recess playing basketball, um, everyone went out there, and I'm the lone white kid, and not only am I the lone white kid, I'm the lone white kid when the movie White Men Can't Jump came out, and so when everyone's playing basketball, because Michael Jordan and the Bulls are killing it. Um, all of a sudden, like everyone wants to play all the time basketball, but the one thing that they don't want is the pasty white kid on their team. And for good reason. I don't even like, I don't even have a problem with it because I, I stunk at basketball. Like if I was amazing, I'd be offended. I have zero offense. They were all better than me. And so the thing was that they would pick teams. You'd have, um, usually it was John and it was, it was Enrique. John and Enrique were the two best ball players. And Enrique Rodriguez, he, what he would do is he would stand there and he would go, uh, John would pick the, the tallest, best um, athlete. I don't even remember the kid's name, but he'd call that kid, and that kid would join on his team. And Henry, Enrique's first pick, was always 
me. Every single time, that's how I felt. I was just like, I, why, why, why are you picking me? Like, I am not skilled, I'm not good, I, I, I'm gonna, I'm, are you doing this to mock me? Are you trying to showcase how lame I am that you would pick me instead of, I mean, pick me last, I'm cool, at least I'd be able to play, but you're picking me first, why would you do that? And each time he would pick me. And not only would he pick me, he'd pass to me, which is terrible strategy. If you want to win, you don't pass to Errol, and yet he did. And like each and every time, like I remember like when I first came to this church, they had a, a, like a basketball league. Doug, you were on it. You never called me to come play. <laughs> and I knew you were a smart man in that moment. It was, but, but Enrique did. He picked me over and over and over again and passed me. And he would pass me the ball, and, and like, he's like, shoot it. I'm like, no, you shoot it. And he would get the ball, shoot it. I'm like, you shoot it. And he's like, Errol, shoot it. So I'm like, fine. And I shoot it. And it airballs. I'm like, and everyone's like, and I'm like, thank you. Thank you for making me look like such a fool. Again. And this happened recess after recess after, after recess. And then one day I went up to him and I said, Enrique, why? Just tell me why. Why are you choosing me to be on your team? Why are you choosing me when you could choose someone else? And he said, Errol, I'm choosing you because I'm choosing you which gave me zero satisfaction. I had no idea what he meant by that. <laughs> what Enrique was saying is, I'm not choosing you for your skill. You stink. I'm not choosing you because it's a popular decision. Everyone else on my team are like face palming whenever I, I, I pick you. I'm choosing you because I'm choosing to choose you on my team. I've got more confidence in my skill to win this game than your weakness. Now here's the deal. All those other kids that were better basketball players on that blacktop in fifth grade, they're probably still pretty good at basketball. But I guarantee you this, I doubt if any one of them, 35 years later, are still telling the story. But I am. I am. Because he chose me in my weakness to rest in his strength and if you're a Christian, God's done the same thing for you. He didn't choose you. He didn't choose you for your skill set. He doesn't want to utilize you in the kingdom because you're so polished and you have so much potential and you're so perfect and, you're, and you, you're qualified. No, he chooses you in salvation because he chooses you. It's his prerogative and he continues to choose us. At the bottom of your notes, I, I just put this. In Jesus, the extraordinary, ordinary savior of the world, the weak becomes strong and the first becomes last. Sad is the person that is resting on their own greatness. Happy is the person resting on the greatness of God, the God who takes the ordinary and does the extraordinary. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the gospel. The gospel is this, we are far from God, we are dead to him. And yet he, in his love for us, chose us, not just for salvation, but to continue to come alongside him in everyday life. If, you're, if you feel limited by your limitations, you're too young, you're too old, your opportunities have passed you by, the life that you dreamed of is not going to be a reality. Your hopes and dreams are, are, are tarnished or toast because of something that's taken place and you just feel like there's no hope, you are in the best place for God to use you today. 
If you're a Christian, that's an invitation to you. If you're not, if you're not someone who's ever received the gospel of God's grace, where he takes the undeserved and says, I choose you because I choose you. I wanna give you an opportunity to respond to him today. We're gonna pray. I don't give you a chance to respond and say to God, I'm asking you to lead me. I'm asking you to forgive me. I'm asking you to take all the wrong that I had and all the excuses I've had to be distant from you and throw them away so I can just follow you now because not because I deserve it, but because you love me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, every single person in this room is a professional, including me, and making excuses. Lord, we think that only the strong can be used. We see that in everyday life. And yet you model for us a radically different message, a radically different picture of what life is all about. And God, I thank you for that. Lord, I thank you for calling the ordinary. I thank you for giving us the the freedom to be honest about our limitations and our weaknesses, that we, we don't have to feel like we have to fake it to make it in our faith. We don't feel like we have to fake it to make it in the kingdom of God, that instead it is our honesty and our brutal ordinariness that you use to do extraordinary things. Lord, this morning, I pray that you put your hand on anyone that is not yet surrendered to you. As we're praying, if that's you, if you're not surrendered to Jesus, simply respond to him by saying, Lord, I know that I'm distant and disconnected from you. I can feel it, I can sense it, but I'm done running away from you. I'm blown away that you would want me. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sin, to wash me clean, to make me new, and to give me the invitation to join you in the kingdom work of just living the way that you've called me to each and every day until I get to see you again. Lord, be my foundation. Let you and your work for me be the thing that's my defining identifier. Let my life be strong because of that in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the storm of life, in the midst of my weaknesses and limitations that dog me. Let me stand tall with your strength, God, based on what you've accomplished for me. And I'll give you the thanks for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray.